You can call it a communications failure. I think it goes beyond that. I, I just think that's a failure of humanity to not express some empathy. It is the week of August 23rd, and welcome to episode 94 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. This week, we have Jamil Jaffer, NSI founder and executive director, and the former chief counsel and senior advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Michael Gottlieb, NSI visiting fellow and former associate counsel and special assistant to the president, Ryan Brown, former CNN correspondent at the Pentagon, who spent three years on the ground in Afghanistan, and myself, Lester Munson, a senior fellow at NSI and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. We are recording this podcast on the afternoon of Monday, August 23rd. The U.S. and other Western countries are currently engaged in a massive effort to airlift out thousands of Americans and Afghans from Kabul after the Taliban effectively took control of Afghanistan. Ryan, great to have you on this podcast. Uh, you're You're a veteran of various activities in Afghanistan. You've got experience on the ground there. What's your assessment of the effectiveness of this emergency airlift operation? Sure, and, and thank you uh, for having me on. Um, I, you know, it, you kind of have to grade the effectiveness in, in kind of different parts. Um, clearly, they seem to be getting more effective at actually getting aircraft to take off and land um, with personnel. And, and today they, they had new statistics about uh, several thousand American citizens have been flown out and Upwards to over 20,000 total people have been flown out since it began. Um, obviously, if you look at the beginning of it, uh, it was incredibly ineffective. Um, I mean, you had the horrific uh, images of the perimeter of the airfield being broken, a crowd surging onto airplanes, clinging desperately, and some unfortunate souls even falling to their death um, in a desperate effort to escape. Um, clearly, since then, they've been able to establish more security at the airfield. Um, they are able to get planes in and out, but there is still a tremendous challenge of getting people in processed and through the airfield onto the airport. I, I'm familiar personally with several cases of American green card holders who just cannot get through. They've several days. They wait out there for hours in the heat, often being harassed uh, by militants and others. Um, we There was a report today uh, or overnight, uh, there was a shooting. Uh, the, one of the Afghan guards lost his life. So it, in terms of effectiveness, there's still a long ways to go. And while they have made some progress, they have this 31 August deadline that they're trying to meet. And it's really hard to envision with the current state of affairs, how they're possibly going to meet that. Uh, Jamil, Michael, you guys might want to weigh in here. I mean, it seems to me uh, for the situation right now, we're probably getting better news than we thought. It does seem like the situation could have been much worse. There's not been significant loss of life. Um, Americans do seem to be, for the most part, able to uh, leave from the airport. There's no question that we're at the mercy of the Taliban here, but it's been proceeding in at least a reasonable way on the ground. Nevertheless, we're in a situation where members of Congress are having to get involved and deliver information to the executive branch on individuals who might be eligible to be airlifted out. Uh, there's all kinds of uh, Amer um, individual American citizens who are concerned about people they know on the ground who are also Americans or who have helped the American effort there who are trying to um, make their information known to folks who could help them. There are also, uh, you know, in the, in the aid space, a number of contractors and grantees and the folks that they worked with on the ground who are desperately trying to figure out how they can help the folks that they've worked with for so many years on these American projects in Afghanistan. You can't help but think that this is not at all the way it was planned to go, that uh, we were expecting a completely different circumstance on the ground. So, so Michael, Jamil, pulling back a little bit, how do, how do we judge uh, you know, granted, we're in the middle of it right now, and, and things could definitely take a, a turn for the worse, uh, either either as we're speaking or, or soon before this podcast comes out. But how do we judge it right now based on what we know now? How do we judge the administration and how they've done so far? Jamil, go ahead. Um, I mean, I, catastrophic. Uh, Les, I actually, I actually don't think your characterization of how it's going on the ground is accurate at all. Um, I've had the, um, I don't know if it's the benefit or the challenge of working with uh, some of these groups directly um, overseeing some of the cases of Americans 
and green card holders trying to get onto the uh, the airfield. And let me just tell you, to be clear, American citizens, American green card holders, SIVs, approved SIVs, are not getting consistently on the Hamid Karzai International Airport. They are waiting for hours outside at the gates. They're struggling to get through, um, and they are um, uh, facing challenges, including uh, attacks on their persons um, and uh, and having to go through Taliban checkpoints. And so this idea that somehow things are going fine on the ground and people are able to get out is completely false. Um, and that's just that's just American citizens and green holders, much less all of our Afghan allies, the SIVs, the interpreters, uh, and and their families in the P1, P2 category uh, evacuees. So um, unfortunately, I hate to say it less, but I just don't think, you know, I, we are getting a lot of people, there are a lot of people leaving, but a lot of planes are leaving half empty also. Um, and so um, I worry uh, that, uh, that if this uh, pace continues, um, and something isn't done to fundamentally change what's happening on the ground, um, we will leave American citizens behind. We will leave a significant number of green card holders behind, and we'll leave virtually all of the SIVs, approved or not, pending uh, behind. So I think there, I think the president has indicated some amount of, uh, of of potential of extending the time that we're there. I think there's no question that's going to be required. Uh, it's our it's our obligation to our own citizens. It's the president's most fundamental duty to take care of Americans wherever they are. It's our moral obligation to our allies who fought alongside us. Um, and uh, and I think the president should actually go on TV and be very clear and say that not one American soldier will leave Afghanistan until every eligible, every American who wants to come home and every eligible Afghan who served with us and their families have the ability to apply and get onto the airbase and have a chance to get on a flight if they want to get on a flight. Michael, what's your assessment? Yeah, you know, Les, I mean, this is deeply personal for me. I spent 14 months over there at, um, at JTF 435. I drove, I lived at the embassy. I drove that road to the airport more times than I can count and flew out of that airport more times than I can count. I have uh, the, the interpreter that did most work for me, made it out a few years ago. He lives in Virginia now, but other interpreters who worked with our task force contractors who worked uh, at the embassy as embassy staff are still over there. Uh, I've supported the work of organizations like No One Left Behind for many years now. And I agree with Jamil. I, 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 in, in part, I agree that this has been a cluster uh, and it didn't have to happen this way. Um, I think there are, um, I think it is true that if you, if you sort of start the timeline from a week ago, we're in a better situation than I think a lot of people thought we would be a week ago. They are making more progress, getting more people out and are on a pretty good pace uh, to get to that 100,000 number. So I think it is going better in some ways than I think many of us feared uh, a week ago. But that doesn't change the fact that Jamil is right. There are people who can't get to the airport. There are people whose documents are being taken from them at Taliban, Taliban checkpoints. There are people who are being advised by U.S. Embassy Kabul not to leave their home and not to try to come to the airport at times and missing maybe their chance to um, get on a plane. So there are people doing their best to make uh, lemonade out of lemons here. And I think that the situation is a lot better than it, than it, it could have been um, if you measure it from a week ago. None of that changes the fact that we're looking at, um, you know, a significant intelligence failure, a significant bureaucratic failure from the management of the SIV program, a significant military planning failure. And we can talk about those things, but uh, we should all cheer that more people are getting on the planes now. We should all be doing everything we can uh, as citizens and, and people, especially those of us who worked in government, to be working with our you know, contacts to get people out and get as many people out as we can. And I agree completely with Jamil that that is the moral obligation of uh, of our country. And it's the moral obligation of our commander in chief to make sure um, that every single person that risked their lives uh, to keep us safe while we were over there gets to the United States or gets out of Afghanistan. So Michael, let me, let me ask you uh, about President Biden. President Biden's been out in public talking about the situation in Afghanistan almost on a daily basis uh, for the last few days. In some cases, he's taken questions. And when he is asked about uh, the current circumstance and the total chaos we see on the ground, he responds by effectively saying the decision to withdraw is the right one and he's sticking with it. As if to say that any question of or criticism of uh, the situation on the ground implicitly means that the U.S. should stay in Afghanistan 
uh, you know, ad infinitum. Do you think the president's setting up, it, it seems to me the president's setting up a straw man uh, when, he, when he answers the question that way. What's your take on that response from the president? Yeah, I mean, so look, I think there's a question of what do you expect the strategic communication strategy and plan to look like from a White House in this kind of a situation. And it is entirely unsurprising uh, to me anyway, that the White House is going to try to find something that feel they feel like is their position of strength from a communication standpoint, rather than kind of diving into the position of weakness. And it's also happening alongside this broader policy debate that's taking place out in the media, where like a lot of the former um, military and civilian leadership are writing op-eds and going on TV, and they're talking about the policy decision. They're talking about the, the policy of leaving Afghanistan. And so the White House is kind of trying to respond to both of those things at once. And of course, defending the policy decision to leave just doesn't say anything at all about how you execute it uh, once you've made the decision. I agree completely with that. And so, of course, it doesn't substantively answer the argument. But the question is, you know, as a communication strategy, because I think that's kind of the, the, the world that you're in there, is that going to be an effective communication strategy for them? And, and and maybe it will, and maybe it won't. They're obviously banking on the polling that shows overwhelming numbers of Americans that back withdrawal, even after everything that's happened over the past couple of weeks. Um, so there's a, there's probably a, you know, a method to the madness in terms of the communications strategy, but, you know, I mean, I'm not going to say, um, I'm not going to say that, 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 it answers substantively the argument that the um, the execution of the decision to leave um, was done in a way that um, that was sound, uh, because I think any sort of reasonable person looking at the situation can find different things that could have been done differently. Um, uh, and clearly, I mean, e- even even if you just reduce this to what appears to be uh, the decision to go with the consensus view on the intelligence standpoint that Kabul would hold. Um, even if you sort of grant that as a given, you still have failures of planning in, in, in relying on a sort of military plan that got rid of Bagram that said we'd be able to get out of Kabul that didn't sort of plan for the contingency that we were wrong. Um, and a lot of people's lives were risked as a result of that decision. So there's a lot here to unpack. Um, and I And I agree with you that um, you know, answering the question in that way substantively doesn't really answer the question that we are talking about right now. I want to ask Mike a question because, Mike, I know you said I, you and I agree on almost all this stuff. I mentioned Ryan's thoughts on this too, but you know, one of the things you said was you know, there's a massive intelligence failure, a military planning failure, a uh, failure of bureaucracy, State Department to get people cleared. But I, I'm not sure those those things last together because what I see is I see a heroic effort by the military to do what they can given what they've given the policy that have been put on them. Right? They've been told you have to stay at the airport. You can't really journey out. Um, uh, the military has been told you know you, you, your job is to just once people get in is let people in through the gates that we tell you to. State is processing whatever they can as fast as they can. But you know this all turned on them rapidly in this intelligence failure. Right? I mean. I guess what we're hearing now is, yes, there wasn't a consensus that it would fall this quickly, but everyone knew it would fall eventually. And there were some arguments that would fall even faster within days and weeks. And so I guess I just don't see, I see a massive policy failure. I think we can all agree on that, right? I mean, I'm not trying to, at this point, it's not even about blame. The question is, what do you do now, right? And so my thought is, if you're going to do this, right, put aside who failed, whatever, you could put another 10,000 troops in, right? Start securing ground lines of communication in the parts of Kabul and get Americans out, right? You could secure buildings downtown where people can go to and pe- place on the outskirts, but they're not doing that. Why is that not the answer, Mike, Ryan? Well, let me just say, I don't think that's right, Jamil, because if if you assume that, um, that Ghani could have rallied some amount of the NSF and warlords to protect Kabul for six months, then you wouldn't be seeing any of the things we're seeing now because they'd be able to get people out to the airport. The, the problem then would be the SIV... Uh, process is too slow. And then look, there's a whole separate discussion that I know you want to have about the policy. Um, but I'm just talking, we're just talking about the execution of the withdrawal. If Kabul had held for three to six months, none of this would be happening. And all, and, and so the decision to leave Bagram, which is a, a literal fortress in the middle of nowhere with two giant airstrips on it uh, that we can defend, yeah. we can bring big planes in and out of, that decision is catastrophic in light of the intelligence decision. So if you had known in advance that there's a, 
50% chance that Kabul is going to fall overnight. Nashraf Ghani is going to leave the country with $169 million in cash. You probably don't make the decision to leave Bagram first. You probably keep Bagram. You probably keep some other, maybe you keep Jalalabad um, and you leave and, and, and then and you get people out of Kabul first. Um, but I, I just think in light of that um, variable, the decision to leave Bagram is hugely consequential. And that is a military planning decision. Let's get uh, Ryan DeWayne. Yeah, I mean, uh, to the idea. So I, I totally agree that, you know, obviously there was an intelligence failure uh, here. Um, but I, I do think like, look, if you think that there's going to be a collapse, whether it's two years, weeks, six months, I think you should have a more actionable plan for right. that collapse. And, and, and I think what we're seeing here is, um, yes. I, I too, and I spent years with the ANA, uh, saw them fight firsthand. They were always the first line of defense. They, uh, when we left the wire, we were side by side with them, Shona Bashona, you know, and, and uh, I was shocked. Um, you know, I've seen analyses since that are pretty good explaining what happened. And, and really it's, it's not the 11 days, it's the three and a half months since the collapse months since the announcement of a total and complete withdrawal the uh, ambiguity about air, air support, uh, the end of maintenance contracts. I mean, you, you kind of have to start the clock a little bit earlier. Um, but the, clearly there was an intelligence failure. In terms of, yeah, could they uh, militarily, could the U.S. and the coalition have surged forces uh, in the middle of that collapse while, was, while you know, in that 11-day period when it kind of the writing on the wall um, secured the, the you know, ground uh, lines of access to the, to the airfield? Yes, they could have, but that would have contained, I think, way too much risk for this president and this administration. If you had shootouts in downtown Kabul, you know, Masood Circle, um, all it takes is a couple. I mean, we saw the other day there was a, a shootout outside the, uh, the airport. Um, you, if you had that, all of a sudden you have street battles. Uh, and this administration, I don't think, has the risk tolerance for that scenario. And, and I've heard people around the Pentagon whispering they're desperate to avoid a, a Mogadishu, um, you know, Black Hawk Down type situation. Uh, so, you know, yes, it is technically, tactically possible, but there is just, I don't think any political will um, to implement that as a policy. Yeah, but Ryan, aren't they aren't they seeing a mini version of Mogadishu happen right now with babies being thrown over walls? I mean, you know, people being trampled in the streets. I mean, this is, you know, it's not American, so maybe the American people just aren't, aren't as worried about it. But it's, what's happening is atrocious and outrageous and nothing befitting a superpower uh, I mean, how can they not react now? I mean, how can they not expand the perimeter? I mean, I just the whole thing boggles my mind that anybody who sit in the White House thinking this is how we want our country to portrayed to our allies and our enemies. This is what this is what America represents in the world. I mean, I I I, I agree. I, I I it's you know horrific imagery. Um, I think this president uh, and this administration was rightfully criticized um, in their initial statements of, of, for expressing almost no empathy for Afghans. Um, I think there, uh, his initial statements made no reference to the suffering of, you know, nearly 40 million people who are going to be subjected to this regime. Um, and, and so I do think that, look, you can call it a communications failure. I think it goes beyond that. I, I just think that's a failure of humanity to not express some empathy for that. I do think they're prioritizing Americans. And I think there is a strategic decision that if they can get out every American citizen, if they can avoid any U.S. military casualties, that that will be a relative success for them. And I think they're much less concerned about the Afghan, uh, the situation, the Afghans is, is tragic and horrific as it is. Yeah, it's a really important point that you made, but I, I think what, what even bothers me even more is not only did they not express a sympathy for the Afghan people, it went the opposite direction. The president sent Anthony Blinken out and then Jake Sullivan and then himself out to not express sympathy for the Afghan people, but to blame them, to blame the Afghan military for melting away, to say it's their fault. Had they not melted away, we wouldn't be in this situation. I mean, it's it's appalling. It just the, the callousness that for a for a for a for a military that lost sixty thousand plus soldiers in this conflict at a time when we lost twenty five hundred soldiers for the president of the United States to stand on a stage. And to send his staff out to suggest that it's their fault that we're here is, 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 is I mean, it's mind-blowing. Yeah, I, Mike, do you want to I mean, defend it? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to agree to disagree on the following point. 
Um, I don't disagree that there was a lack of empathy for the suffering of the people in Afghanistan. So there we're on, we're on the same page. And I think that as a communications matter, um, they did not do a good job to put it mildly uh, in those 72, in that first 72 hours in the way they were communicating this. On the other hand, the Afghan forces put down their arms and cut deals with the Taliban all over the country. And the president of Afghanistan picked up with his entire team, got on airplanes with a bunch of cash and flew out of the country. And that was not the plan. That was not the strategy. Put down their arms and cut deals with the Taliban like us. We put down our arms and cut deals with the Taliban too, right? That was, that was us. That was... President huh? Trump and Secretary Pompeo, who and signed President it, Biden, who it started with President Trump and Secretary Pompeo, who signed a deal with the Taliban, committing us to leave on an aggressive timetable, promising that there would be follow up that the Taliban was living by its agreements, which never happened, and releasing 5,000, uh, forcing the Afghan government to release 5,000. Taliban detainees who rejoined the battlefield after we spent more than a decade begging and convincing the Afghan government to build a detention capacity, a lawful and humane detention capacity that some of us worked personally on to uh, then turn around and force them to release 5,000 Taliban detainees and expect that you could somehow go back in after that and get them to recapture them all or to fight (laughs) is naive. Uh, I I mean, I I would... Go ahead, Ryan. Uh, no, I just say, like, I, I would agree with uh, a lot of what was just said. I mean, it, it, is, it is galling to see people who were cheerleading for the, that previous deal uh, to now, you know, pretend like negotiating with the Taliban for the evacuation of American citizens is the worst thing that, that, that has ever happened in the history of this nation. I mean, it, it, there is uh, people shirking responsibility. Um, for that. And it was a horrible deal that totally sold the Afghans out. Um, But, you know, again, this president has shown uh, a willingness to abandon deals and agreements and decisions made by his predecessor. Uh, And, you know, he said the buck stops with him. Uh, I don't. And again, on the on the point about uh, his denigrating the Afghan military, I I totally understand his frustration that they didn't put up more of a resistance in that 11 day period and that Ghani bailed. I mean, I can I can see why he was seething with frustration. But if you look at the reaction uh, amongst our allies, uh, particularly those in you know, the UK, um, there was something that they found particularly galling was the just total, not even brief acknowledgement that 60,000 of them had had died in, in military campaigns largely directed by US military commanders. I, I, so I, I think there's two things can be true here, that the leadership of the Afghan government uh, abdicated their duty. Um, but the rank and file of the Afghan military did fight side by side with the West uh, for decades. So I, I think both things can be true. I think we can all agree that the photo of Mike Pompeo with Mullah Baradar is going to have a huge impact on his ability to run for president in 2024, or really at any time. Uh, Haley, please jump in here with what you have found. Yeah, so I have a question and a comment. So we were talking a little bit about whether or not we even have this option to extend. And we've been discussing this, media is absolutely blowing up. Brian, you had also mentioned what's going on in the United Kingdom. Um, Boris Johnson wants the possibility of us extending. Americans want us to have this possibility of, of extending beyond that August 31st deadline. A Taliban spokesperson got on this morning and basically just said, if we are there past August 31st, that's considered a, a red line. And so do we even have the option of staying in Afghanistan past that point? We seem to have been abandoning a lot of diplomatic relations now at this point by wiping our hands. A lot of people think that we've been wiping our hands. So what, what's possible here? I'm, I'm just curious. Well, you know, it's, it's funny, Haley, you asked that question because I've been wondering this myself. I kept wondering why the president, who had set a September 11th, 2021 deadline, which by the way, never, let's never talk about the, the catastrophic nature of saying on the 20th anniversary of the day 3,000 Americans lost their lives on American soil to a terrorist attack hatched in, in Afghanistan, that that's the day we're going to leave. Uh, put that aside, he'd always said September 11th. All of a sudden, 
We saw the entire administration pivot and start talking, start talking about August 31st. I couldn't figure out why. And now the answer is clear. They made a deal with the Taliban to leave earlier so that the Taliban could control the country on the 9-11 anniversary, 20 years to the day. And they made a deal that if the Taliban gave Americans safe passage through their checkpoints and whatever. And we don't know. I don't know the details of this. But it seems clear that's what happened. And if that's right, that's shocking. So not only did the administration butcher this decision by leaving way too precipitously and way too early, they butchered it even further by cutting that short by another almost two weeks, by drawing that forward, in order to cut a deal that the Taliban aren't abiding by right now, because Americans are not proceeding easily through the checkpoints. They're not leaving unmolested. And, and by the way, it doesn't even account for, forget Americans, it doesn't account for our SIVs. Clearly, they didn't cut that same deal with SIVs. And I bet I bet part of that deal, I mean, I, again, I don't know, and maybe I'm just hypothesizing here, but I bet the reason American forces are still sitting on that base and are barely making any expeditionary operations out to rescue Americans is probably because that's the deal they also cut. That not only not not only can you not leave, can you have to leave by the 31st, you can't leave that airfield. The, the, the deal whereby the Taliban would not attack American troops was the Trump deal. It was, that was part no, of no, the no. agreement. We're talking about now. The, we're talking about now. Forget American troops. I'm talking about, I'm talking about molesting Americans through the checkpoints. Remember, the president stood on stage and said, we have a deal with the Taliban that they won't touch them come through the checkpoints. That's what this is about. The Taliban had already agreed in the original deal that if we leave by the deadline in the deal, they would not attack American troops. So that, that, that agreement was part of the framework that the Trump-Pompeo deal put into place. So I, look, I don't know what I, I have no uh, information about a, any deal that may have been cut with the Taliban by the Biden administration. What I would say back to Haley's question, though, is, is it an option for us? Of course, it's an option. Of course, we can violate the Taliban stated red line if we decide it's in our national security interest to do so. The question is, what would the consequences of that be? And, you know, what you haven't seen, um, whether in Kabul or elsewhere, are IEDs blowing up uh, convoys of civilians trying to make their way to uh, the airport. You haven't seen, um, you know, RPGs being fired in uh, into the airport from, you know, the outskirts of Kabul or whatever. So there's a lot of things that we haven't seen. And maybe you would start to see some of that in an escalation if we did stay past August 31. And, 31. and um, now that some of the um, most infamous characters uh, whether in the Haqqani network or uh, the Taliban writ large or hanging out in and around Kabul, just walking the street. That's a very realistic possibility that you could see that post August 31. So I do think there's a, there's a realistic chance it could get ugly, but of course it's an option for us to stay. Um, it just means you're talking about a significant escalation of tension. Now, maybe some amount of diplomacy can fix that. Um, maybe there's some amount of, of working with allies um, that can be done to stop that kind of an escalation from happening, but um, it's, it's got to be something that's in the toolbox. Michael, can can I ask you, do you think the administration would make that decision to stay in Afghanistan past the deadline if, let's say, all Americans that we know of are out, but there's still some of the Afghans who work with us who remain? Would, the, would this administration actually make the decision to stay and get them out, given the decision-making process we've seen so far? It's hard to imagine them making a decision to keep an American presence to secure the airport for that purpose. I can easily see them making that decision if there's a significant number of American citizens, green card holders that are still you know, in country and, um, and we haven't been able to get them out. But it's hard for me to imagine them doing that for um, Afghans who worked at the embassy or as interpreters or contractors. Ryan, let's, uh, let's shift a little bit. Um, you're, you're, I know you're down in Florida. You're, you're a little bit removed from the swamp here where, where the rest of us are talking from. Looking at what's going on, what is your assessment of how other countries see the United States now that we're going through this this agonizingly awful withdrawal process in Afghanistan? Well, I, I think there's a couple things, obviously, you know, uh, depending on the country, right? I think uh, a lot of our allies are seeing uh, a America first 2.0. I mean, I think uh, a lot of uh, some of my friends uh, from who were NATO personnel, you know, basically talk to me about Trump's speech. Stephen Miller's, you know, could have written some of Biden's speeches on the Afghan issue. I mean, there has been a concern that the the opinions of allies, the views of allies have not been, while they may have been listened to in a formal consultation process in Brussels, that there actually, there was no, they had no effect, right? Their, their expression of, of concern or, or their advice was not listened to. I mean, there's a palpable sense of that. And I think that's driving some of the 
shockingly public indignation by senior leaders in, in Germany and the UK. Um, our enemies, you know, the president said that no one's happier to see us stay in Afghanistan than Russia and China. There has been very little evidence of that. I, I think both seem to be restrained in their glee um, at the humiliation that is being broadcast around the world of, of people clinging to a C-17 uh, taking off. I mean, I think that that is seen by them as a pub very public humiliation uh, of the United States and, and, you know, people questioning its superpower status and even seen the Chinese state media try to draw linkages to Taiwan um, saying, you know, you should be trembling because this is how America treats its allies. So, um, you know, the reactions are, are mixed. Um, but, you know, I think, again, will this pass? I, and I think that's what a lot of folks in this administration, the policy folks are hoping that while this is a shock um, to America's image internationally, that over time, uh, as the images are let not on the cable news every day or the front of the newspaper, uh, kind of like their domestic calculation, that they're hoping that the, the negative impacts of it wear off. And I, I think that's a question to be determined. Yeah. And, I, you know, and, and on that point, to Ryan's point, I actually think that they're making a hugely big mistake on all the calculus there, right? Number one, maybe the president is badly misreading the situation uh, by saying what he said, suggesting somehow that this wasn't catastrophically bad for our alliance relationships. Um, and hugely detrimental to our ability to deter our adversaries. Um, I don't, as you, as you say, Ryan, I don't see any evidence to suggest that he's right. I think that your analysis is exactly spot on. And, and look, I think that domestically, I don't, I think that, you know, as this will remain a national stain on our character for decades to come uh, around the globe. And in the United States, I think it will, it will, it will uh, reflect on the president. I think this will define his presidency. I think he doesn't quite comprehend. And I actually think that there's a moment to still turn this around. I think that, you know, even a week ago, even three, four days ago, he could have turned this around. Even maybe even now, he can still turn this around. Um, but there's nothing to suggest that, in fact, he's going to make that choice. To the contrary, uh, Ryan, to your point, he seems to be behaving exactly like Donald Trump would, right? Um, having, having made a poor decision rashly, he's doubled down on it convinced himself he was exactly right, that he was never mistaken about it. There was nothing flawed about the way he executed it. Um, and then it was all somebody else's fault, even though he claims to take responsibility. It really is Donald Trump's fault. It really is you know, somebody else's fault. You know? and, and I do think that our, our allies are going to see this as a reflection, not just of what this president has done, but it reflects also on what President, president Trump did when he abandoned the Kurds to the Turks. Right. And so that what our allies will see is a consistent theme over at least two presidencies, maybe three, where we our allies are, don't believe we're with them. Our enemies aren't afraid of us because we're we're so afraid to use the military element of power, so ham so ham handed about it when we do uh, that I think that this is going to become a theme about who America is in the world, and that's unfortunate because this president had the opportunity to not have it go this way, and yet here we are, and even as he's making the error, doesn't seem capable of recognizing the mistake and turning it around. Michael, do you want to weigh in? I mean, look, Jamil Jamil's worked in a White House before, and I think Jamil understands that you know no president ever is going to get up in a press conference and say, I have made a catastrophic failure. Shame on me. Mm. Um, so, you know, like what you are seeing is a reaction. If we're, if we're talking about our allies uh, and our adversaries, there's a, again, reaction to the policy and reaction to the execution of the policy. And it's really important to sort through those if we're trying to think about long-term effects here, because the policy of leaving has been decided for a very long time. And yes, Biden had the ability to reject it and change course, but it was decided a long time ago. So our allies have known as a policy matter and our adversaries have known that we are leaving Afghanistan and we did it basically on a full-fledged surrender to the Taliban. We've known that since President Trump cut the deal. Um, you can blame Biden for not walking away from that. That's fair. Uh, he has to own not walking away from that, but that's the policy. On the execution side, I think, to, to Ryan's point, I think the calculation is probably correct that they will survive this. In other words, that people are mad, um, allies are angry, there, uh, there is disappointment, frustration, all of the above. Um, and you're seeing, to some extent, certain allies kind of going it their own way uh, with respect to their own citizens and operations and country. Um, but that seems to me to be much more short-lived as an issue with our allies and our adversary than the policy of leaving Afghanistan. And I think, you know, that's worth a, uh, you know, that's worth a discussion. But on an execution standpoint, I think it is unlikely that this has a, you know, 
something I think it is unlikely that this will have an effect outside of the imagery, which uh, for better or worse is going to be stuck with us. The, the image of the guy jumping off of the airplane, that's going to be stuck with us forever. And that will have lasting consequences. Um, but um, but I, I don't think outside of that, the blunders in execution on the SIB program or failing to secure the road to the airport, I don't think those things at that level of um, tactical um, operations in Afghanistan are really going to hamper our, our relations with our allies in the future. Michael, if I may, when you talk about imagery, I think something that's in- incredibly disheartening to actually see is there were images that were released by Al Jazeera of Taliban militants who not only were wearing our tactical gear, American tactical gear, but they also, in in complete slight to the United States of America, did a promotional video that included a a slot of them looking like it was a, a take back to Iwo Jima. You look at that imagery, and that's certainly important. We have a bunch of our people who've actually served on the ground who created this digital Dunkirk to try to evacuate Afghans. And so when you think about the failure of the Biden administration or the failure of the Trump administration, doesn't matter who it is, the the fact of the matter is people realize how much of a blunder this is, how many individuals were left behind, not only just people, but our actual intelligence. We have a bunch of our actual gear and, and no one did anything about it. And so now it's up to private citizens who are trying to make these calls. I know that Jamil and Ryan have been very, very crucial in trying to get people out. We're relying on our private citizens to do the job of the government. I do not think that that's inexcusable. Well, I mean, look, on the, the Taliban imagery you're talking about is an image that they could have put up regardless of whether we had the world's best execution of a withdrawal from Afghanistan and would have. Should it really be a shock to us that an organization that has become as sophisticated as as they are with social media over time um, wouldn't do that? Of course, they're going to do something like that. The equipment piece um, is a military planning issue, and it is one that should have been better planned for. And I think the administration and those who were involved in that process deserve criticism for it. And and I'm I'm not concerned about I'm not concerned about some of the equipment that you're talking about. I'm concerned about drones. I'm concerned about um, I'm concerned about other kinds of technology that appears to have been left behind um, that the Taliban now has their hand on. And that's, you know, that's catastrophic. It is. It's, It's a catastrophic failure to have not had a plan in place to get as much of that equipment either home or to allies elsewhere. Um, And again, there, there are decisions that were made along the way that I don't, I didn't have visibility into, I didn't, I don't understand what the limitations were on the planning. Like we, none of us here sat through those planning meetings and understand why they couldn't get some of this equipment out. Um, But it is, it is, I want, I do want to say this, it was inevitable, no matter how we did a withdrawal, that some amount of American equipment was going to be left and fall into Taliban hands. And so that type of propaganda was inevitably going to happen and we should have expected it. I'm going to jump in and defend our military planning process. I, I actually think this goes back to the policy failure. And I know Mike thinks I want to litigate just the policy question, but I really do think that if we hadn't decided to leave so precipitously, right, and, and set such a tight timeline to get out and get out now, no options, no extensions, right, we would have had a much better planning process. I don't think anybody in the military expected the president to announce the decision he announced on the date he announced it, that we give out by a date certain and rush it. And then I don't think anybody expected him to accelerate that up because he cut some deal with the Taliban again. I don't know that he cut a deal with the Taliban. Clearly, the Taliban think he cut a deal with them about August 31st because that's what they're saying out there, right? And clearly, he thinks he's got some sort of reason to leave by this new deadline because he keeps saying it on television with no explanation of why it's now August 31st instead of September 11th. So clearly, there's something going on, right? But look, the, the, at the end of the day, right, it wasn't the military decided, hey, you got to be out of Bagram on a date certain. That was Joe Biden's decision to leave Bagram on the date they left. And the date they left, they bailed out, didn't call the Afghans, didn't tell them, hey, take over this facility, right? Left it open, gates unlocked. I mean, even the Soviets, even the Soviets rolled out on their own equipment at a time of their choosing. I mean, we couldn't even manage to do that. So, Jamil, Secretary of Defense Austin went to Kabul in March and very publicly at that time, the, the withdrawal date was May, right? And said, we're leaving. So this was after Biden had redone his review. The Secretary of Defense travels to Afghanistan very visibly 
on TV in front of the world and all of our allies and says we're leaving. So at that point in time, it's not a mystery anymore. To I mean, look, again, you and I don't know what was being said in classified meetings over at the Pentagon or, or in, the, in, the, in the interagency. And maybe something will come out that will you know, convince, convince me otherwise. But this decision was made. It was made publicly. It was defended publicly. Austin made these points across the table from Ashraf Ghani on TV. Like it, th- this should not have been a surprise. And there should have been a plan in place to get the, what, ne- what had to be removed from the country out. And if that couldn't have been accomplished and the decision was made anyway, then that is a decision that the president has to own. If they, if they knew we couldn't execute this or they had good reason to believe that it couldn't be executed and they decided to rush ahead for whatever reason, then I completely agree. With you. Let's reframe this, Jamil, before we have another string of adjectives. Let's reframe. Let's pull back from the policy question and let's go to national security decision-making apparatus of the U.S. government in the executive branch. We have a National Security Council. We have a State Department. We have a Defense Department. There's a series of other agencies that are involved. Do we have a fundamental problem with our national security decision-making process, aside from whatever President Biden may have decided at the top, is there an issue with the way our executive branch is making and executing decisions? Uh, Ryan, I'll ask you to go first. Um, uh, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, hard to, you know, I think what's interesting, you know, you say a lot about the Trump administration, but because there was so much infighting a lot of the time, we had a lot more transparency via press leak about what the process was or lack of process that I think we have in this current administration. We had whole um, books there's a certain exam while it was still going on, right? I mean, uh, I mean, the Bolton chapters on Afghanistan are fascinating. Um, the so with this administration, I think they're much more in locked up. Uh, they're much more opaque. Um, so it is, in, in fact, you know, you had the president say that his military commanders had not recommended keeping troops in Afghanistan in that ABC interview, um, which flies in the face of what a lot of public, you know, major newspapers have reported um, and the Pentagon refusing to comment either way. So it's kind of hard to understand how this decision actually was made. So without knowing, uh, I guess I'll have to wait for the tell-all book. But because of this, the the and again, I'm sure they're they're very um, in lockstep. They're they're very disciplined, which is in, a good thing in Washington historically. If if, if you're on, if it's your team, um, but it, I think it makes it a lot harder to understand how this decision was arrived to uh, this specific decision and, and what the decision making process is like. Uh, obviously, the president has people that has have been with him for a very long time, um, people that he's relied on for long long parts of his career, people he's known. He also has people who are relatively new arrivals who he doesn't know that well. Hard to imagine that they all have equal say uh, in these conversations. The president seems to value people he's had around him a long time. Uh, and then on this particular issue, he's had very strong opinions uh, for a very long time. So um, it, it, it's kind of, again, I think without knowing more, it, it's kind of hard to grade their decision making process. Clearly, there were failures, um, but without having a better understanding, it's hard to identify those points of failure. We've seen some leaking going on on blame shifting. DOD is kind of blaming the State Department for not getting the applications for the interpreters, kind of putting more urgency on that. Um, the state is kind of blaming DOD for having rosy intelligence assessments about the Afghan National Army and their capabilities. So we're kind of starting to see a little bit of that classic bureaucratic infighting. But I, I guess, you know, I have to say without more data, it's kind of hard to to make a judgment as to whether the process itself is functioning versus the actual outcomes and the decisions being made. Michael, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, look, it, just in terms of a general process, I think the NSC process is reasonably sound. The question is whether it's being executed properly. And I think, you know, that the idea of um, having a sort of centralized um policy and coordination body within the White House that helps bring together the views of the interagency, relying on their expertise and advice and teeing decisions up in a rational, um, sequenced way for the president and the, and the civilian leadership of the military in many cases to make the decisions they need to make, makes sense. Um, is it always executed well? No. Um, and so you, you have to see in any administration, is there something systematic, you know, that's being done to Ryan's point? I think we don't know yet if, you know, how the NSC process is being run um, in this administration. 
Um, but I do think that generally speaking, that process is a sound, rational one that in most cases results in the right information being put in front of the right people to make decisions. Um, does that mean it's perfect all the time? Of course not. Um, and every administration can tweak it and change it and put different emphases on policy areas and people. But I think generally speaking, it's a sound process. Camille. Yeah, no, I, I tend to agree with 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 Mike and, and Ryan that it may be too early to know. And, and the general process, I think Mike is right that, it, you know, it, it is a solid process. I think the challenge here um, is that at least from the outside, what it feels like. And, and I and again, we don't know the details about what happened on the inside is, but it does really feel like the president made a gut instinct call right? That he got all this information presented to him, whether it was packaged up well by the NSC or not, and whether there were dissenting voices or not. Now it's clear that he doesn't think there were dissenting voices because that's what he's told us publicly. Of course, we now know that's not true, right? But but in his own mind, the decision seemed to have been always clear. And it seems like he made it very quickly and very abruptly and emphatically without any sort of options for, for varying from that choice. Again, a very Trump-like moment it feels like for Joe Biden. Um, and then and then he's he's stuck with it. You know, there isn't been a lot of rethinking of the core policy. Again, not the core policy withdraw, but the core policy withdraw so suddenly and so drastically and without a plan and 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 to continue to implement it that way uh, after it became clear the the lack of a plan was causing significant failure. And so I do think there'll be a lot to learn, right? Does this mean we need a new Goldwater Nichols Act like some people Dmitry Alperovitch on our advisory board has called for? Uh, you know, a, another another need to look back at this and again, not just because of this decision, but because of the entire length of what happened in Afghanistan and the way it played out. Uh, that may be. Remember, it took you know, you know, dozens of years before Goldwater Nichols uh, passed, even though Vietnam was was long in the past. Um, but I do think that at a at a minimum, this administration for the for the remaining three. <laughs> two and three quarter years it has, uh, needs to seriously think about how it reaches decisions and how it implements them and and how it sort of, you know, it it was one thing for them to look at the Trump administration and say, look, you guys weren't self-aware. You didn't know what you were doing. It was blunderbuss, right? They appear, unfortunately, to be very similar in that way. And so a lot of the criticisms, again, the Trump administration had a lot of problems with it and things that, you know, uh, nobody should should do in that manner. Uh, And yet the Biden administration seems to embrace some of their worst characteristics, right? Making rash decisions, doubling down on them, and not admitting error. Again, I don't, I, Mike, I agree with you. I've worked at the White House. No president's going to roll out on stage and say, I was totally wrong. It was horrible. Most presidents would say, I wasn't wrong, but then would pivot to doing something that would recover them from the thing they had failed to do correctly. This president seems incapable of even doing that, which makes him a lot like his predecessor. Well, I'm, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit, Jamil. I think it's, it's too soon to make that change. He's got to wait till the current crisis is resolved successfully. But then to Ryan's point about the Biden team being loyal to each other, having worked together for years, all knowing each other super well, no backstabbing, no leaks. I think in a way, that's the exact weakness of this administration. There is no outside voice. There's no alternative view. There's no one with any independent stature outside of their position in Biden world who can speak the truth to power. And they really need that outside voice they need more of a team of rivals approach. Maybe you don't have to change every single position, but they should be bringing in a big name, probably a Republican who can come in and, and challenge the president when he makes, uh, you know, on their face, bad decisions. Okay. So uh, instead of our usual shtick at the end, where we talk about a story we're following, uh, that's not necessarily in the news, because I know we're all just really following Afghanistan. I want to do a lightning round on Lindsey Graham's recommendation that the president be impeached. Jamil, do you think that's a good idea? I don't think it's a good idea that the president be impeached, but I do think the president needs to go on national television and admit that this was a mistake and that uh, that he that he's going to do it differently and that he's going to get every American out and that not one American soldier will leave Afghanistan, as I said earlier, until every eligible Afghan, not Afghani, by the way, it's Afghan, um, and uh, and every American citizen in LPR who wants to leave, green card holder who wants to leave, is out. Michael? Impeach? Yes or no? That's preposterous. I mean, and having spent time with Lieutenant Colonel Graham in his reserve duty for Joint Task Force 435, trying to convince the Afghans to establish a durable, long-term, humane detention capacity, one would think that the president that Senator Graham would call for the impeachment of would be the one who ordered the Afghans to release the 5,000 prisoners that he worked very hard uh, to have them detained. So, I mean, look, this is political theater. It is what it is, but it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Could, could we impeach Trump a third time for this? I mean, there's, no, there's nothing that says we can't. was not suggesting that. Oh. I'm just saying there's a, 
a rich irony in the suggestion. Ryan, where are you? Impeach, yes or no? Uh, hard no. Uh, I think we've cheapened impeachment to a degree. Um, I, I would I, look. I wish there could be have a confidence vote. Uh, you know, in the in the parliamentary style, I, I do think it would help uh, this administration to know the level of you know disquiet even within his own party. And I actually think where the Congress w- would be smart in doing is focusing. There has been bipartisan criticism. Uh, if you're if you are a Republican and you're upset about this, uh, I would they should sit with the Democrats who are similarly upset about the execution of this and come up with some uh, bipartisan, you know, either at a formal commission or investigation or some kind of act to really, you know, try to fix what went wrong because that clearly we, the stuff went wrong and Americans have a right to know. But I think that's where the energy should be directed, not in some quixotic uh, impeachment campaign. Haley, where are you? Would you vote for impeachment or not? I would have to agree with the group here. I don't think that we should be bothering with an impeachment. I was at the White House during two impeachments with Trump. I think at this time, what we really need to remember is as easy as it is for us to discuss what's going on in Afghanistan. There are a lot of people who gave their lives. There's a lot of people who've worked on it over the last two decades. And I think that an impeachment is going to distract this country. And I think as Americans, we need to realize that the the after effects of what's happening in Afghanistan is, is not solely a Republican and it's not solely a Democratic issue. I think that we need to remember what united us to begin with when we decided to go in there and with the idea of, of diplomacy and democracy. We should not lose sight of that. We should not get distracted with an impeachment on on President Biden, I, I think we need to figure out a, a way to move forward. And though we should have some types of reflection on what went wrong here, we, we could do better, I think, in, in trying to heal. That's my take. Haley, I totally agree with you. All right, we're 5-0 and o against impeachment. Okay. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Brian Barrick for research assistance, and Haley Lornahan for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.